If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, today we will begin in the book of Romans uh, chapter 11, and we will read the last four verses of chapter 11. While you're turning there, I do want to remind you, we, we spoke a few weeks ago about we uh, beginning a sermon series on the attributes of God. And when we consider the attributes of God, that usually brings up two questions. Number one, what do we mean by the attributes of God? And, and secondly, why study the attributes of God? When I say attributes of God, what I'm talking about is qualities or characteristics that describe to you and I who God is. Um, theologians throughout the years have looked at the words that God has revealed to us in his scriptures. They have taken the actions and the words that are spoken by God and and they have identified characteristics or attributes of God, things like his self-existence, which we will consider today. God is spirit. God is sovereign. God is holy, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He is unchangeable. He is truth. He is wisdom. He is goodness and graciousness and love. His foreknowledge is proclaimed in Scripture and his righteousness and wrath. And we will look at those 15 um, attributes or qualities of God um, throughout these uh, coming weeks. While we will look at them individually, God cannot be separated into parts. And so these intermingle within the Godhead. Um, each attribute is equally belongs to Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and each attribute will inform and shape the other attributes. But God is infinite and we are finite. And so while these things do mesh together in the Godhead, in order for us to begin to understand them, we need to look at them individually. But I will be referencing certain attributes uh, throughout this as we look at the weekly attribute. The next question is, why study the attributes of God? I'm going to be up front with you. We're going to swim in the deep waters for the next few weeks, for the next few months. Um, I'm going to try to bring it to a level that we can understand. But the question is, why study the hard things of who God is? Why do the work of dealing with some of the vocabulary and the philosophical concepts that we will look at briefly with these attributes? Stephen Lawson says in his video series on the attributes of God, he says, high views of God lead to high and holy living and to exalted worship. And he says the opposite is true as well. A low view of God leads to low worship and a low view of holiness. We are called to worship God, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And we grow in the level of our worship as we grow in the knowledge of who our God is. And so as we go through the next few months, please pray that God would use the information given to you in this sermon series to expand your view of God so that you can live and worship him, live for and worship him better. So our scripture today does come to us from Romans chapter 3, Paul's doc, or Romans 11, Paul's doxology beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Self-sufficient God, open our eyes and our hearts to the glory of your aseity. May our lives be changed as we contemplate the truth that you need nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 35 of the passage we just read, Paul, quoting from Job chapter 41, says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him. Have you ever thought about the question, what does God need? What does God need? We know what God commands. We have the Ten Commandments that are summarized in the greatest commandment, as Jesus tells us, to love God with everything that we have and everything that we are, and also to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we know what God commands. Scripture even goes so far as to tell us things that God desires. He desires that people would hear and respond to the gospel. He desires that all men and women would be saved. This is a desire, not a decree, which we'll get to later on in this series. But we know what God commands. We know what God desires. But what does God need? You and I need all sorts of things. We are dependent upon other people. You and I need parents and friends. You and I need relationships in our lives. And depending upon how long I preach today, there may even be evidence that we need lunch. But what does God need? As we look at this doctrine of aseity, that, that word that I'm sure you're looking at in your bulletin and wondering, what does Ike mean by that? That doctrine is going to point us today to the fact that God needs nothing. God has created. God has ordained that things will happen, but he needs none of those things. God is totally self-sufficient. Everything that is required for God to be completely and perfectly God is found in himself and nowhere else. Next week, we'll look at the fact that God is spirit. And so since God is spirit, we know that he does not need food or he does not need sleep. God is triune. He is three persons in one God. So he does not need any relationship outside of himself. God exists in the fullness of his glory, and he is utterly and completely self-sufficient in and of himself. And that's what that word means there in your bulletin, aseity. It comes from two Latin words, the word a, the letter a, which means from, and the word se, s-e, which means self. All that God has or needs, he has from himself. God is the self-existent, self-sufficient God of all creation. And as you and I unpack this idea today, I want us to think about that in terms of how he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3. 
will apply this revelation of God's self-sufficiency to our salvation and hopefully begin to understand more and more the depths of the love that God showered upon his people when he acted to save them and then apply God's self-sufficiency to our life. First, God reveals himself to be self-sufficient or say as he gives his name to Moses in the book of Exodus chapter 3. Now, we know who God is because he has revealed himself to us, and that's important for us to understand. Romans 1 tells us that God reveals aspects of his being in creation, so we see his power, his infinite power, and his justice as we look about creation. But he has given us a specific revelation of himself within the scriptures as he breathed out descriptions of his acts and his words to the authors of the scriptures so that we could have revealed to us in language that we can begin to understand who God is and what he has done. God has accommodated himself to our level of understanding. God speaks baby talk to us because he is infinite and we are finite. He speaks baby talk to us so that we can begin to understand to a level where we can love and worship him. And one of the places in scripture where God specifically reveals himself and his aseity to all of humanity is in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. God has met Moses on the mountain. He saw the bush that was burning and yet not consumed. And as he neared to investigate God spoke to Moses and said, you are going to be my instrument to bring about the release of Israel from slavery. And Moses gives a handful of, of, uh, of objections to this. And one of the objections was, well, under whose authority am I going to speak? He asked God, he says, if I'm asked, and I likely will be, who should I say is sending me? And God answers Moses in Exodus 3, 14. He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God gives his name to Moses, and that name is some form of the combination of the pronoun I, that first person personal pronoun that we use to refer to ourselves, I, and the verb to be. Sometimes we struggle with this name. If you look down in the footnotes, especially in the NIV, it says that an alternate translation of this would be, I will be what I will be. So sometimes we struggle with translating God's name because number one, it, they did not uh, pronounce the name out loud and they also did not write the name in its fullness uh, in Israel and later Israel. And also because when it comes to these verbs of being, Sometimes it's difficult to understand. The philosophy of existence, what does it mean to exist? What does it mean to be? Has the name ontology, which comes from the Greek word to be, and the Greek word word means the study of what it means to exist or to be. If I say I am, typically I follow that up with some descriptor. I am tall. I am hungry. I am going to go home after church. But what does it mean to be? 
What does it mean to exist? The philosopher Rene Descartes came to the conclusion, I think, therefore I am. Somebody asked Rene Descartes one time if, if uh, he wanted a piece of bread, and he said, I think not, and then he disappeared. If, if he thinks and therefore he is, well, if he thinks not, then boof, he's gone. That's philosophical humor, folks. It's, it'll sink in by the, end of the, uh, by the end of the series in about four months or so. Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, as he was seeking to define what existence was, how he could define and know that he existed. He said, since I have thoughts and ideas, then I know that I exist. God tells Moses, I am myself. I am me, therefore I am. Nothing outside of God beyond the fact that he exists is what defines his existence. For you and I to exist, there is a process that includes parents. Think about your parents for a little bit. Your parents had to meet. Your parents had to actually like each other enough to hang out together for a while. Your parents had to like each other enough to get married. But now think about them. Their parents had to meet and like each other enough to hang out and like each other enough to get married. And their parents had to meet and so on and so forth all the way back to the beginning of creation. You and I are dependent upon this infinite number of people meeting for our existence. And that process is ultimately dependent upon God. There is no process for God. He simply is. He simply exists. And he doesn't need a process. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to be able to say, I am. We actually see this illustrated for us in the picture of the burning bush. As Moses was tending his sheep, he, he looks up on the side of the mountain and he sees a bush on fire and yet the bush is not being consumed. Have you ever burned dry brush before? What happens to the brush? It goes away. Why does it go away? Because the fire, the heat, is dependent upon the fuel in order to be able to burn. And yet the bush with the fire that represents God is not consumed. It is not burned up. The fire representing God was a self-sufficient fire. It did not need fuel in order to burn. And so we begin here in our study of the attributes of God with the declaration that God exists in himself without any need for anything outside himself. And that leads us to consider how this applies to our salvation. If God does not need anything outside of himself to be completely and perfectly God, then by implication, this means that he does not need you or me either. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses is explaining to the people of God, to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, he is explaining to them that they are God's chosen and treasured possession. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I are all human. 
Somebody tells you you are a chosen and treasured possession. What is your temptation? Hey, I'm treasured and chosen. I am the cat's meow. I am special. And we are going to get conceited. We are going to get proud. And so to keep that from happening, God follows up this declaration that you are a chosen treasured possession with this statement from Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Lest the Israelites get arrogant in the fact that they are God's holy and chosen people, God says there is nothing inherently valuable about you that made me choose you. We look back to the Garden of Eden. In chapter 3, the, the serpent enters and Adam and Eve, who are dependent upon God for everything, declare their own self-sufficiency their own self-determination. And God calls that sin. And he brings judgment upon Adam and Eve by casting them out of the garden and also making them subject to the powers of death. And yet he says, I will provide redemption through the seed of the woman. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read these words. But God demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't need the Israelites, but he loved them. God doesn't need you or I, but he loved us. And not only does he not need us, we were in active rebellion against him when he chose to send his son to die on the cross for us. Folks, this was not, as many people within the world say, this was not cosmic child abuse. This was a God who did not need to redeem rebellious humanity, choosing to love sinful humans enough to send his son to them. In Ephesians 3 Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would begin to understand the depths of God's love given to them in Jesus Christ. Many times you and I are called through our study or through listening to preaching, we are called to, to ponder the depths of God's grace. As you and I begin to understand that God saved people, rebellious people, whom he did not need to save to be fully God, to be fully glorious, to be fully loving. Until we understand that, we cannot begin to see the depths of that love. Meditate on this truth. God does not need you. But out of an infinitely deep pool of love and grace, he obligated himself to accomplish the work of salvation. Let me say that again. God doesn't need you or me, but out of an infinitely deep 
pool of love and grace. He obligated himself when he didn't have to to accomplish the work of salvation so that you and I could be reconciled sons and daughters of the Most High God. In 1995, Stuart Townend wrote the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold that man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Brothers and sisters, what great and undeserved love. The God who needs nothing outside of himself showered upon rebellious people in order to save them. Finally, what are some ways that we can apply God's aseity to our own lives? Theology, the study of Scripture, is nothing if we cannot walk away with some application to our lives. First, God is self-sufficient and needs nothing outside of himself, and so that should grow humility in my heart and in your heart. You know, there are times when I am tempted to think, well, you know what, if I don't show up, God's not going to do his, not going to be able to do his work in Fairly, West Virginia. God doesn't need me to do his work in Fairly, West Virginia. He doesn't need you either. He has ordained that he will work through us. He has ordained that you and I will be the conduits for his good news. But if he had ordained it, a different way that the gospel would be delivered through our pets, we would not be necessary for God's kingdom to come. Instead, many of us fear to pray for humility because we fear that God will humiliate us in the process. And instead of praying for humility, pray that God would drive home the truth of who he is as the utterly self-sufficient God so that you and I can see ourselves in proper relationship to him. Worship, we've mentioned this already, a high view of God leads to greater worship. I know we're Presbyterian, but if there was no desire for a robust hallelujah or amen to burst forth from your lips as we considered the depth of God's grace in relationship to his self-sufficiency, well, then I need to go do that second point again. Because that should have brought worship to our hearts and to our lips. God does not need our worship, but he does command it. And as our view of who God is expands, so should our worship. 
holiness. We are set aside, set apart, Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 2. We are set aside as saints, as holy ones before God. How did we get set aside as holy ones before God? It's the work of Jesus Christ that God obligated himself to when he didn't have to. And as a response, not because we can earn that gift, but as a response to that gift, you and I should pursue the holiness that God calls us to. When someone in our life unexpectedly goes above and beyond to serve us, there is typically a response to, quote, return the favor. We cannot return God's favor. But a contemplation of who God is should lead us to a desire for greater holiness. And finally, stewardship. I would encourage you at some point uh, this week to look at Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is one of those places in the Psalms where God says, I don't need your sacrifices. I own everything. And that includes everything that you and I have. Our time, our talents, our treasures. Everything that you and I have is a gift from God. And we are called to use those things as his stewards for his glory and for his honor. How you give of your time, how you give of your tithe, how you give of your talent shows how you view God. A.W. Tozer says that an elementary but correct way to think of God is as the one who contains all, who gives all that is given, but who himself can receive nothing that he has not first given. You are not giving to obligate God to anything. God gave you everything that you gave to him today in your tithes and offerings. And even if you choose to hoard it rather than to give it back to him, he's going to collect on it someday. So what does God need? God needs nothing. Not you, not me, not any portion of creation, even the smallest of atoms. But out of an infinitely deep well of love, God has chosen to create. Chosen to create men and women that he knows will rebel against them. And also chose to love them to such an extent that the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh, dwell among us, and die so that we might have the hope of salvation. Grow in the knowledge of the God that doesn't need you, but loves you anyway. Let us pray. To the great God above, we do thank you that you are self-sufficient. We need something that is utterly different than us to worship. And we thank you that you are that God. Lord, help us to grow in humility as we consider who you are in your self-sufficiency. Help us to grow in our worship as we understand the depth of the love that was poured out for us, help us to pursue holiness and help us to be good stewards of the great gifts that you have given. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we go this week, take this blessing upon you.
to God's holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this sermon from Fairly Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our church and its ministries, please find us on Facebook or visit us at www.arpchurchfairly.org. That's www.arpchurchfairly.org. Have a blessed day.